I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In June of this year, the Conservative Party will choose a new leader. Its last leadership race in the spring of 2017 highlighted competing visions of the party, uh, springing from different values, priorities, and approaches among the country's conservatives. Andrew Scheer won that contest in 2017, but just barely. After several rounds, he edged out Maxime Bernier, who later left to form his own right-wing party. During the general election last fall, Scheer and his party received more votes than Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party, but failed to form government. Now Scheer is on his way out, and the Conservative Party and movement are looking ahead. So, what is the future of conservatism in Canada? Today my guest is Kate Harrison, currently Vice President at Summa Strategies, formerly a legislative assistant and provincial election social media strategist, who will talk to us about the directions the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement might take. Hello. Hello, good to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Well, let's start with uh, with this. Let's start by disaggregating the Conservative Party from the Conservative movement, or movements perhaps. Where do they overlap and where do they not? Well, the groups are what they have always traditionally been. Uh, you know, you've got your your classical liberals, your libertarians, social conservatives, people that would style themselves red Tories or progressive conservatives. They're still out there. They're still out there. Yeah, um, but I think that more than ideology, what unites conservatives now is not being liberal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so more than just kind of the traditional factions, if you will, and and people, I guess, self-style is that, but really you don't hear a lot of the same tribalism that you would have back when the party was not uh, together, you know, mm-hmm. when you still had your reformers and your progressive conservatives. You don't really hear people saying that out and about. I think they style themselves as conservative. Uh but really, it's it's not rooted in, in one ideology or even necessarily uh, a combination of the ideologies I mentioned. Um, it's it's a desire to win and a desire to not be liberal. Right. Well, so this is interesting. Let's pick up on that. Um, people often think of the liberals as a big tent party, in which they obviously are. They're very good at at um, you know bridging disagreements, brokering. They're, you know, as a brokerage party, brokering uh, enough agreement to form government to put forward a, a pretty coherent legislative agenda most of the time. But in many ways, the conservatives are even a bigger tent, right? Because they do encompass all the groups right. you just mentioned. And, you know, people think of the left as fracturing in this country, as fractured and, and um, having a tendency to fall apart. But but the right historically has shown that tendency, at least in the past forty years. Yeah, that's a that's a fair observation. I I think that conservatives ha- def- definitely have a big tent to appeal to because um, you know I'm thinking back to kind of before the party was was one. Uh, you've got people in the movement that are more concerned about social issues. You've got people that are more concerned about fiscal, um, and then you've got people that care really about neither and just want the government to be effectively a placeholder holder for law and order in your libertarian. So um, it, it is indeed a big tent, uh, but I think that uh the left to your point is is equally of that kind of that fractured state obviously uh we've seen that 
kind of a separated right-wing movement in Canada uh, has limited uh, electoral appeal, limited electoral viability. Uh, and I think conservatives, by and large, regardless of where they fall on that spectrum, uh, my experience in the party has been that um, they've they've found it suitable to kind of put any sort of uh, tribalistic differences aside in the best interest of, of winning. Right. So now, you know, I should declare an interest. I want a strong conservative party and strong conservative movement. Not because this shouldn't shock anyone, um, because I'm a conservative, which I'm not. I'm a social democrat. David, but I'm shocked. Well, even worse than I mean, on on some days I'm I'm um, somewhere left of Lenin, and on other days I find myself um, looking at the liberals and thinking, oh, that looks quite nice. Yeah. So it depends on on my mood, I think. But in, in general, a, a social democrat ish. Um, however, I don't trust any. Uh, font of power. I don't trust this. I'm inherently distrustful of the state. I'm inherently distrustful of organized political parties, certainly distrustful of business, et cetera, et cetera. I want all that checked. Mm -hmm. And I want, uh, therefore, to be a good check on the liberals, a good check on the new Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so uh, that, I, I come from, in some sense, that space. And so I'm actually concerned of a, about a disintegrating conservative party and perhaps what comes of it. I mean, hmm. we, we've seen Things come from the disintegration of the right in the past, and they were uh, deeply harmful to the country. Mm -hmm. Think of the early 1990s and Quebec nationalists, uh, but also a certain sort of virulent uh, form of conservatism that we'd seen in the past. So that's, that's where I'm coming from. So to me, job one seems to be keeping the party together, mm -hmm. whatever the future holds. And, and something that Stephen Harper, for instance, was very good at. Uh, can the next leader do that? It's not clear to me that Andrew Scheer necessarily could have. Yeah, well, it's a it's a fair observation. So to to answer your first part of the kind of the, the question that you pose, the next leader I think absolutely can, and the reason for that is the the possibility of electoral success is palpable for yeah. a lot of conservatives. Right, uh, came very close uh, in the last election. So I think that uh, the immediacy of electoral victory absolutely means that the leader has an opportunity to to keep the party together. Uh, but I also think that whoever the new leader is probably needs to learn some lessons from Andrew Scheer's defeat and subsequent resignation. Uh, the biggest one that, that I would suggest, uh, the biggest lesson I think there is to take away, uh, is the importance of kind of bringing the other side whoever is successful, bringing the other side into the tent uh, right away. Uh, you mentioned in your intro kind of the, the divisiveness of the last race, a very, very slim margin, Andrew Scheer defeating Maxim Bernier. Uh, I think a lot of conservatives would suggest that that outreach to the other side uh, did not happen in the way that yeah. it needed to. Uh, what the end result of that was, uh, was not a whole lot of people um, in Andrew Scheer's corner when they needed him to be there. So well, Andrew Scheer at the time of the, the leadership election was seen by, by many as a consensus choice. Uh, as the leadership went on, as his leadership went on, uh, we sort of drifted a little bit further away from that consensus builder, uh, a little bit more focused on, I think, his, his personal beliefs. Uh, which is perhaps a faction of you know being in the job and yeah. wanting to define your leadership, uh, but I think when when push came to shove during the campaign uh, and it wasn't uh, clear to those within the party necessarily that uh, Andrew Scheer was that consensus candidate, and I'm speaking very specifically of uh, yeah. you know not standing up for LGBTQ Canadians or at least that was the the optics that were that were present. Uh, 
he no longer became that consensus choice. And that's why you had conservatives uh, after the election, despite a successful result on paper, uh, looking uh, to have him leave. This I find really interesting because I was watching him and people would say, just march in the pride parade, just say you're pro-choice or just whatever it might be. And I kept thinking to myself, don't. Mm-hmm. If that's not who you are, if you don't believe it, I would rather a, a leader who stuck by his values and didn't lie and wasn't duplicitous. Now, I think federal leaders should march in pride parades. Sure. I think they should want to. Yep. I think they should be pro-choice. I think they should be pro-choice because they're pro-choice, not because someone in the back room said yep. you've got to pretend you are. So I think the problem wasn't that he um, wouldn't do these things. I think the problem was that he uh, wouldn't do them because he truly wanted to be who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, things coming to a head. But to to that point, I... I'm, I'm actually with you on that, and I think that a lot of conservatives are. There's there's sort of two camps on on this issue that I've observed. One is, uh, well, you ought to do these things because um, it's just politically savvy to do so, uh, and society has moved on, and you know uh, views other than that are, are retrograde. Uh, and then there's another camp that says, well, he's certainly entitled to his beliefs like anybody else in this country. As conservatives, you know, if you're truly you know an equalist, it, then right. you would think that you can hold whatever views you want. To. Uh, the difference, though, is that he didn't take the time between when he won and the election to make that clear and to huh. take that stand. And I think that that is the flaw. Uh, there is some preconditioning that has to happen uh, when your views align with 20% of the population as opposed to 80% of the population. Uh, had that been done, Maybe things would be differently. It's hard to say. Maybe the questions would have persisted and society is, is you know, maybe the electorate still would have found it uh, not palpable. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, we think that nothing ever gets settled in politics and we never agree on anything. But the fact is we settle things all the time. I mean, we, we come to national consensus uh, on, on all kinds of things and those things get effectively you know, either taken off the register altogether or sent off to the side. We don't really talk about them. And then, like you said, 80% of the population comes to believe something. Uh, That doesn't mean we demonize necessarily the other 20%, but they also don't get to run the agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, To that point, though, does that mean the conservative party needs to modernize with the next leader? And if that's the case, what does that look like? Uh, You know, you mentioned earlier red Tories. I could imagine a red Tory leader who looked, in fact, quite a bit like a liberal uh, as some of the past have, and would be very appealing to the electorate. In fact, it was funny when during the last leadership campaign, I had friends who joined the party to support Michael Chong. Mm. And I thought, well, that's the problem right there, isn't it? Is that mm. uh, Michael Chong is the, the choice of every single non-conservative right. in the country who yeah. has an opinion about the conservative leadership. Yeah. But what would a, a quote-unquote modernization look like now? Modernity is a pretty broad term. I think it has become a bit of a catch-all, to be blunt, uh, in terms of one's views on same-sex marriage and on a woman's right to choose. Uh, and I think that that may be a bit uh, disingenuous to modernity uh, on the whole. Sure. So I, I think that, you know, if you're asking, uh, do conservatives need to, uh, you know, support same-sex marriage unequivocally? Uh, do they need to support a woman's right to choose unequivocally? Uh, I think on the former... Yes, uh, because I, I, to me, as a conservative, it just it does not compute for me. And I think increasingly we're seeing more and more Tories come to this conclusion that if we support the family unit uh, and we support like absolute freedom, uh, which most conservatives say they do, 
then you know what is the what is the challenge here about around same sex marriage uh the second part of that uh, is I think there's more room for, for a gray zone and for, for a discussion there. Uh, but if we're talking about those two things as, as modernity, then, you know, yes, I think the, the party is moving in a direction, at least uh, in terms of equal marriage, that I, I think the page will turn and, and we probably won't be talking about this in a year or two years from now. Um, but I think that broadly, broadly uh, there's modernity in terms of policy, like the ones I discussed, and then there's modernity in terms of positioning. Yeah. Uh, where I think the room for modernity is is in positioning. Uh, recently, Abacus Data, a, a company that uh, Suma is affiliated with, uh, did a poll talking about the conservative brand surveying all voters and then conservative voters specifically. And the major takeaways were that the par- the party brand is viewed as as old and traditional uh, obviously is conservative, uh, but then more alarming things as well, uh, closed-minded, mm-hmm. racist, uh, these terms kept coming up, uh, not just amongst people that don't vote for us, because that's obviously less of a concern, but even amongst the pool of accessible voters, they tend to hold some of the same brand perceptions uh, as regular voters. That's bad news mm-hmm. for conservatives who obviously have done a very good job of rallying their base and, and reaffirming their brand proposition with the base of 31 to 33 percent. Um, but if accessible voters think that we're uh, old and close-minded and racist, that's not a good place to start. So I would say where the modernity is needed uh, is in the branding of the party. And well, and especially outside of the West. I mean, this is the other problem that the conservatives have is if you look at their electoral success, I mean, there was plenty of it, but it wasn't distributed in a favorable way, at least if your goal is to form government. Uh, one of the complaints during the election was that uh, the party wasn't playing well in the suburbs of uh, Metro Vancouver, the suburbs, obviously, of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the suburbs are a complicated place. Indeed. Uh, and changing very and fast. And changing. They're not necessarily old, you know, middle class white mm-hmm. uh, folks. There's all kinds of different people. Uh, people often forget that new Canadians uh, tend to be fairly conservative, including socially conservative. Indeed. Um, in fact, one of the at least strategic uh, strokes of brilliance of, of the last conservative government was the move to, to recruit new Canadians into the party, which mm-hmm. was done fairly successfully by a kid who went on to uh, form <laughs> government in Alberta. Right. And uh, make all kinds of trouble here in Ottawa. <laughs> uh, but um, that's the other challenge, though, isn't it? Is that you've, you've got to appeal to uh, the suburbs, which you would, would expect to have done better for the party than they did in 2019. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a, a few things to unpack there. But the biggest one that, that I would observe, yes, uh, it's it's making an effort with uh, with those communities. And and I, I do think that that was done under Andrew Scheer's leadership, albeit perho- perhaps um, in a less, maybe visible is not the right word. But, um, you know, with with Kenny, that was his, his job A, B, and C. Yeah, which he it's did also, quite well. He did quite well. And also when you're in government, you have a little bit more um, ability to to do some of that outreach, I guess. Uh, so Jason Kenny has has done that uh, that work quite well with the, the urban and suburban communities. But but to your point, they are changing fast, and I don't know that there was enough policy ambition on the part of the conservatives uh, to anticipate that change. And I, I'm not sure that. Uh, the tax credits that were offered uh, in 2011. They didn't the, like the Bob Seger's greatest right? hits disc two. <laughs> it's great for a certain a certain yeah, voter, but it's sure. it's not necessarily addressing the concerns of the the modern suburb.
suburban family. So I think maybe uh, some policy ambition is is what's needed to to break through. Obviously, uh, spending some time in those communities, obviously putting front and center uh, people from those communities that are your supporters. Uh, my understanding is we had great candidates in those ridings. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the margins now in the GTA are are alarmingly big uh, for federal conservatives nine ten points behind uh, that's that's not a good position to be in I think when you look at where the opportunity is for conservatives to grow uh, my suggestion would be that that should be almost the singular focus of the next leader is how do you intend to grow in urban and suburban Canada the electoral path without those voters is uh, it, it just is impossible. Yeah, and I mean, now, I mean, the conservatives, I'm sure I'm the last person the conservatives want to take advice or instruction <laughs> from, which is fine. I mean, in fact, I would distrust any party that, that had me as a as a top-tier choice for <laughs> advice. But I would suggest that given urbanization, that's not going anywhere, uh, at least until our cities are underwater. And uh, demographic changes, mm-hmm. th- those are going to be severe challenges. I mean, you're, not only are people going to be increasingly urbanized, they already are, uh, we're going to be younger. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, the the last couple of generations won't be around forever. New generations are coming. Uh, the last election, I believe the first election where millennials were the, the largest. Largest demographic. Voters. That's right. So now, of course, they don't necessarily turn out, but they might. Mm-hmm. And so the other challenge is how do you keep up with that? I mean, at some point, you've got to look around and say, oh, I see the, the pool of voters has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a different group of people. Uh, what do you do about that? I think that that's where uh, – so it's a policy mix um, and there were some things that I thought were, were quite appealing in the conservative uh, conservative platform from last time. Uh, I'm a little bit biased because I'm currently on maternity leave with uh, my five-month-old son. Uh, but and the, thank you especially for coming and joining oh. us here today, by the way. This imagine. is my adult time. This is great. Uh, no, um, the, the proposal to make maternity and paternity benefits uh, tax-free uh, I think is, is very attractive for for, for new parents, uh, it allows the you know it's a little bit extra money to put into your pocket. Um, but with millennials and I think with accessible voters, um, policy matters. Uh, but the party should not the party brand should not be a barrier. And I think that that's where the real challenges and the real work that's needed. Uh, a lot of the Conservative Party's brand has been tied up in again not being Justin Trudeau. Yeah, uh, we have this fascination, this fixation that everybody hates Justin Trudeau as much as as Conservatives do. Yeah. It's we've run two elections now where we assume that. Uh, I think it's safe to say that the public is is not with us. Yeah. Accessible voters disagree. Uh, so let's not repeat that strategy. Uh, let's be aspirational uh, in what we want to achieve for Canada. Uh, and and that is partially a mix of the leader. It's partially a mix of policy. It's partially a mix of how we communicate. Uh, so I think for, for young people that are searching around for who to vote for, uh, the brand of old, traditional, closed-minded racists uh, – that's going to have to change. It's not going to be easy and it's going to take a long time, um, but we need to chip away at it uh, in, with a real concerted effort. Well, if, if I was at, at listening on my commute or at home or wherever people listen to podcasts, um, I would be screaming right now, what about climate? I was like, I was hoping I could build, it's like jazz, you want to build and release tension. So now we're going to release that tension. <laughs> What about climate? Yeah. Now, when I was thinking of modernization of, of the party, I was thinking social on, uh, values on the one hand, but mm-hmm. all, but climate, which is the other plank. I yeah. mean, and one of the things that 
I found fascinating about the 2019 election was everyone had to at least pretend they cared about the environment. There was no there was no getting away from it. It was on the agenda in a way that never had been in the past and, uh, and in a way that I think it will be increasingly in the future. Yep. Uh, where the conservatives go on that? Because it seems to me that a carbon tax, for instance, which is inherently conservative, it's a market mechanism, it's not particularly intrusive. And if you do it right, it goes back to people, so it creates incentives. Sure. Um, which they sort of spurned for a long time mm-hmm. and then came up with something that was sort of vaguely similar. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do about the environment and climate change? I don't have the answer and I'm not a policy person, so I'm, you know, I'm hesitant to, to cast judgment on it. What I will talk about, though, is the kind of the political communication sure, yeah. and the, the factors that, that go into that. Uh, there is, you know, we talk about the fractures within the party. Uh, and, you know, the, the disclaimer to that is I, I think that the party is actually in a very good position. I think we're entering the leadership um relatively strong. Like, I, I don't get the sense that, you know, we're just on the cusp of falling apart again into two separate movements. I, I really do think that, uh, that the, the party is... That would have happened last time. Yes, right? I mean, that would exactly. Happen with, Ber- that, that, with Bernier it, it separating. Came up and, it, and it obviously didn't take. That's right. Yeah. So, Thank God, by the way, for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> yeah, you won't find disagreement here. Yeah, so, um, but where I think probably the most tension exists in the movement is on the issue of, of climate um, and a carbon tax. Um, in terms of how uh, how you go about selling, you know, a climate plan to Canadians, I would just observe that, um, you know, Canadians want to play a part. Uh, there has to be a middle ground here between not kind of punishing everyday Canadians. And I think that a lot of the, the carbon tax kind of rhetoric to date has um, very much been focused on, okay, well, it's going to be, you know, higher gas prices and more on your home heating. So so what would you offer to maybe offset that? Again, to the Conservatives' credit, uh, in, in the last election, uh, they offered to, um, or, or they were proposing that they would eliminate the the HST off of home heating bills. Yeah. So, so that maybe, I think it needs to be a bit of a carrot and a stick approach. Uh, but what can't really happen is is just this idea that, you know, well, um, we're going to tell China to really, you know. <laughs> Close your coal plants. Right. Don't yeah. open new ones. Sh- sure. Do. So I, you know, I don't have the answer from a policy perspective. I do think that probably the most robust debate in the upcoming leadership will, will be on this issue, and rightly so. Um, it is remarkable that conservative identified voters continually place climate change and the environmental issues in a top five issue. So it's not as though people in the movement do not care about this. Certainly uh, accessible voters to uh, to us care about it very deeply. Uh, so I, I think that this, this is kind of the big question for conservatives on a policy perspective right now. I, I'm a heretic on all kinds of things, but especially on the environment, because I, I could have anyone from any party sit where you are right now, and they would say, broadly speaking, something similar. And that makes a lot of political sense. And this is one of the many reasons I'm not in politics. <laughs> but what I would like to see is that someone come out and say, you know what, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt you, the individual. It is going to hurt you, the family. It's going to hurt business. It's going to hurt everyone. Because everyone's going to have to hurt because we've been um, – well, conservatives are fond of saying we've been living off the charge card yeah. for a very long time. And uh, now we have to pay it back, interest in principle. And so therefore we've got to pay. Uh, I can imagine an old school duty-bound conservative of, of the maybe 19th century, early 20th century mm-hmm. version coming in and saying that. I can't possibly imagine anyone from any party – 
Maybe the NDP, although even the NDP is fairly coy on that. Yeah. Saying something like that. Do you, is there anyone within the party, any faction, any movement, any leader? Is anyone it's, saying that? Not, not that comes to mind, which is maybe part of why kind of uh, politicians or politics rather is a, a little less accessible and a little less um, straight talk. I think, you know, is there an audience for a message like that? P- perhaps. But, um, you know, I think that unfortunately we're, we're in a time of political communication where everything is just so um, tightly controlled. And, and you know, I it's hard as we're having this conversation to not think about um, the, the passing of, of John Crosby today, yeah. who very much uh, is a straight talker, straight shooter politician. He's being lauded for, for that today um, with his passing. That breed of politician is is increasingly rare in Canada. Um, you know, you see shades of it elsewhere around the world. Boris Johnson comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do think that, uh, you know, it's easier for politicians to play it safe. And uh, they're they're terrified of, of kind of the <laughs> blowback that a, a message like that, hey, you might have to, you know, you might be a bit uncomfortable with this policy decision. I think they're terrified. Well, I certainly don't blame those politicians. I mean, the the incentives that are are don't align with that approach. And I mean, now if every party decided that they were going to talk like that, then everyone could talk like that. Sure. But nobody wants to be the first mover on That's that. Right. You know, nobody wants to be the first person to to um, uh, disarm. Obviously, this is why we can't. Have, it's the same reason we can't have nuclear disarmament. Yeah. Everyone have to do it at the same time. I suppose that the uh, most political, or, or the most likely candidate for that kind of a, a message would be Elizabeth May and the Greens. Yeah. Right. Um, yes, to her credit, they are saying. That. Yes. I mean that's that uh, that is true, but of course when you're in third, fourth, fifth place, yeah, the stakes you, are lower. You can say that. Yeah. So Okay. Well, all right. I, I've been easing us into into this because we because I want to talk about it, but of course we also have to talk about it. The leadership it's it's underway. There are competing factions. We think the party's safe enough. They're not going to split in. We're not going to see the 1990s again. Yeah. Um, we have one member of caucus, Marilyn Gladue, who is who has so far declared. In. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rumors of a few others, obviously. Aaron yes. O'Toole and Pierre Polyev. Yes, yeah. and of course, and then we have the Nostalgia Act. Speaking of Bob Seger <laughs> earlier, we have Jean Charest, right? Who is. Um, at sometimes a uh, provincial liberal in Quebec, although in Quebec you can be whatever you want. Yeah, it's like BC apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. don't get me started yeah, on that. I know. <laughs> I, uh, and Trigger. It, yeah. it is. Yeah, it is a very. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never again. And um, uh, Peter, Peter McKay. McKay. <laughs> that does not bode well for him. Uh, and Peter McKay is back. Yep. So we have um, again, if we're talking about Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, we have um, they're back on the road, uh, and then we have, um, of course, Ron Ambrose, who everyone wants to talk about, uh, who seems to be the hope for for many, uh, and then of course there'll be odds and sods who who join from them. Yeah. Uh, who is odds on favorite? I know, I'm making a say, prediction, really. Do you have a, no? Well, I mean, we don't. The, the nice thing about this is, if you get it right, you seem like a genius, and if totally. you get it wrong, no then, one will uh, remember. No one will remember. Yeah, this is how charlatans do it, right? They make a lot of predictions <laughs> and they just revisit the ones that that end up being true. Worked for Nostradamus. I mean, I'm a I enjoy poker, but like yes. this is a bit of a gamble. I yes, this is I'll yeah. Say, you're hoping to you're hoping to uh, hit on the on well, the river here. Let, let's talk about. Um, 
let's talk about who's kind of swirling and then what it all means. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what they actually need to do to win. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say right now, uh, looking at the ru- the rules are important. So let's start there. So the the suggestion is that there's a three hundred thousand dollar buy in, three thousand signatures needed. Um, cut off presumably, though not announced. I assume it would be like early spring yeah. to allow for a June leadership. Um, three hundred thousand dollars is no joke. Uh, that's. Uh, 200 people giving you $1,500 each. Uh, I think I've heard that in the last leadership election, only something like 600 people gave the full amount. So Really? uh, That's the number I've heard. So uh, getting money in a leadership is is a difficult thing to do. At the same time, it's not such an insurmountable number that if you're willing to kind of work hard, you are coming with a – you have to accept that you have to come with a network. Uh, because you cannot self-fund per the Elections Canada rules. You can't bankroll your own campaign. Um, so this is a serious race for serious candidates. Um, last time it was understood that this was probably going to be a two-election strategy. Uh, the Prime Minister, a lot of Conservatives would say, and I would agree, is on the ropes. Uh, he's vulnerable. Uh, we can't afford a two-election strategy. So I think yeah. the question ought to be, um, who needs the least amount of work? <laughs> between well. now and a, and a probable election. Uh, so that's where, you know, kind of the, the name recognition that you discussed earlier in terms of the Bob Seeger greatest hits, uh, where that plays a role. Uh, and then you've got people within caucus like Pierre Polyev, who has managed to build uh, a fair bit of, of brand recognition within the party. Uh, and then you've got, I, I would say, kind of your your long shot candidates that don't have really either of that history within the party or some current, uh, you know, name recognition. Uh, and they'll probably not be not successful in their bids. So uh, I think that if judging from the sidelines today, uh, this is Rana Ambrose's to lose if she's in. I don't think she's going to be in. Really? That's my view. Okay. Um, I understand maybe she's going to be arriving at a decision on that very soon. I, I think she should indicate yeah. one way or another because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are waiting. Um, but I, I think that if, if she's not in uh, – this may well end up being a race between Peter McKay and Pierre Polyev would be my mm. my guesstimate today. Um, and I, I, you know, you can tell me if I'm right five, six months from now. But uh, I, I think that uh, we're not necessarily even then looking at kind of your yesterday's politician versus today's politician in the way that we would be if we were talking about Jean Charest. Jean Charest's candidacy adds a lot of um, interest to the race. Uh I don't think that he has a handle on today's Conservative Party. Yeah. It's my assessment of his candidacy today, uh, though he is a very skilled politician. Um, and if he does the work, the, the organization work that's needed, uh, he could be uh, find himself a kingmaker. Perhaps uh, it would come down to him somebody like Pierre. Uh, mm. I think Pierre is is out of the gate early, brings a lot of advantages to the leadership race that will be hard uh, for other candidates to beat. Okay, so let, let's let's throw a, let's imagine Ambrose says no, thank you. I'm enjoying my life. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't. And blame good her. for her. I don't. I don't ever blame anyone who wants out. Yeah. I mean, I, I wake up every morning and think, how can I spend today reading the Harry Harry Potter books or some William Gibson having some whiskey? <laughs> yeah, I, I. You can tell I have different moods. <laughs> I go back and forth. Harry and, Potter and whiskey together is a nice combination. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
Harry Potter goes well with the uh, the Highland whiskeys, and if you're w- reading uh, William Gibson, you go to the Isla, sure. which is a pro tip. Okay, so, uh, that's the next podcast. It, it is. Oh yes, I, <laughs> any any day. Um, but if it's say Polyev and and McKay, what, what strikes me as fascinating about that is that uh, McKay is obviously a seasoned politician. Uh, does he have too much of the late '90s, early 2000s shame attached to him? Can he really? Does he have a, his his uh, finger on the pulse of contemporary conservatism? Um, I I think he does. I it, that's why I say I'm I'm hesitant to say that it's a, it's an old versus new. I think it it may end up being styled that way, but I don't know that uh, those divisions, if you will, or, or the, again, that, that camp, the fact that he came from the, the PC side, uh, you know, Pierre is a, is a product of a united conservative party, yeah. right? So, so I think that it's not as, uh, as cut and dry as it would be if there was like a true reformer running against a true PC. Like I, that's why I'm hesitant to go there. I think that, that he does. I just think that the vision, um, and the style that he would be offering would be very different, uh, than Pierre. Pierre is, uh, his his greatest asset is also his greatest liability, which is he is a fire breathing conservative, uh, and he really doesn't like Justin Trudeau. Uh, and party members love him for that, uh, and he's very clippable and he's great on social media, and that's why he will do very well in a leadership. His challenge is going to be uh, convincing people that he's ready to be the the prime minister and showing that he's understood from our last two election losses that not everybody hates Justin Trudeau as much as he does. Yeah. Peter McKay will have the opposite problem. Peter McKay will be a statesman uh, and he will be uh, very even keeled. Uh, and uh, there is a, a contingent within the party that wants to see their leaders be riled up mm-hmm. and mad. Uh, and, and that's what you want to see from, from your leader. You want them to feel the same kind of passion for the issues that, uh, that, vote, that you do as party members have. So I think that that's, it's, it's a style uh, when was the last time the conservatives had a leader like that? That was really f- fired up. Yeah, have they ever? <sighs> Diefenbaker. Yeah, is Pierre Polyev going to point a lot? I think it's changed, though, right? Like, I think that, um, like, a, a word that I heard often amongst conservatives. Um, thinking of Andrew Shear was like, oh, well, he's he's a weak communicator. I was like, well, what does what does that mean? Like, he's not just like he's not uh, pointed or, or yelly or, or angry. Um, I think that as political style is changing around the world, I'm not just think, I'm not suggesting that we need you know a Donald Trump esque like I'm yeah. mad about everything, uh, but there is an element of that sort of. Um, I guess you could say maybe in the leadership, the provincial leadership um, in Ontario, Doug Ford tapped into some of sure. that. Um, he became he became uh, much more kind of like level after he won the leadership. But thinking of the contestants that were around the table, Christine Elliott, Caroline Mulrooney, Doug Ford, I mean, Tony Granick Allen, we'll just put to the sure. side for a second. Yeah. Um, way to the side. He, way to the side. Although maybe she'll throw her hat in federally as the SOCON candidate, the rumor is out there. Anyway, um, Doug Ford may have tapped into that a sure. little bit. So it's it's a kind of a, a populism, it's a populist-esque message. Uh, I think that there's a lot of conservatives that want to want to hear their leaders well, you know what I think it is? I think it's anger and anxiety. And people are angry and they're anxious. Yeah. I'm angry and anxious. I think that cuts across the political spectrum. Yeah. The question is who can harness that 
And the and the sub question is when they do, uh, do they have do they harness it in such a way as that it becomes toxic or not? I right. mean, Bernier tried to do that in a toxic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Ford, I think, initially certainly did as well, but he's mellowed out a little bit. Absolutely. He, he's, yeah. he's, we, could talk, we could spend a whole day talking about Doug Ford because I think a, a potty <laughs> train yeah. Doug Ford is a real danger um, to, to the center and the left in this country. I would agree entirely. And, and I think people don't, um, don't get that. And, and one of the things I found fascinating about Doug Ford is um, he has some shame. Mm-hmm. And he changes his mind and goes yep. back on things. Now, I, it will not surprise anyone once again to learn I'm not a big Doug Ford fan. But uh, he changes his mind and he shows shame. Yeah. That's awfully powerful on a politician. Yes, because people, regular people do that, yeah. right? They don't dig in their heels and say, okay, well, I'm completely – very few people do that. Uh, and that's a lot of the frustration, I think, that – Certainly conservatives and just other voters have with with Justin Trudeau sure. mandate number one, right? It, it was very much this, uh, you know, well, we know what's best for you. Um, this is our ideological ethos and we're going to ram it down your throat. Like there was a lot of a lot of people who felt that way. So I, I'm with you that the the politician that can kind of strike a balance between not being so um, – partisan offensive so as to not attract but someone that can tap into um those those anxieties but harness them for good right come to the table with an op op come to the table with a an optimism about how to change that by the same token though i mean a humble justin trudeau who in in the next two three four years (laughs) um decides to go the other way becomes a huge danger too. I mean, if he could end up um, looking a little bit like he did in the past, but more open to to change, to cooperate, uh, he would be profoundly dangerous, I think. It could end up with a majority back. Well, people forget this. I mean, Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau mania in 68, minority in 72, back to majority in 74. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Shades of the beard history, in 79. Sure. <laughs> so Justin Trudeau is, is several years so he's, he's ahead, ahead of his of father. The, and his, the there's a great story about Pierre Trudeau. He lost the you know, to Joe Clark, despite, by the way, Clark, um, Trudeau got more votes than Joe Clark, something like 500,000 more votes. Right. Um, fickle electoral system. Uh, Pierre Trudeau <laughs> takes off into the forest for a couple months, grows a beard, look, a little bit like Justin Trudeau's, comes back <laughs> and is, I, Jim Coots, who must have been, his, I think it was, who must have been his principal secretary at the time, said, um, you know, you can keep the beard or you can lose it, but if you're going to stay, you have to shave the goddamn beard. <laughs> uh, which I, I have to say, I, I quite like the beard. I, People can't yeah. see me, but I've, I've got one of my own at the moment. Uh, so I hope, I hope he keeps it. But the, if conservatives have to face that sort of Justin Trudeau, they might have quite the fight on their hands. Indeed. Yeah. Who and can beat that? That's a that's so a bigger the question. And into, into the dying minutes, we're on to the next election. General right? election. Yeah. Um, there's so many factors, right? Like, uh, you know, what are we dealing with in the world? Are we dealing with an economic crisis? Are we dealing with a second term uh, a Trump? Are we de- <laughs> yes to that point? Are we dealing with a war? Right. So, um, you know, I, I think. One observation I would have is that uh, there is more of an immediacy to politics now. People want to see change happen quickly. Uh, The result of that, I think, is generally fatigue of leaders earlier. Uh, So if Justin Trudeau is stretching out this for, you know, seven years and wants to make another four of it, 
I think that they have to be mindful of just general voter fatigue. You can't and wanting, go full Chrétien. Yeah. Just, you know, another, <laughs> I think another that time four years is done. out of spite. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. Uh, oh, back to your earlier point. There's a there's a political leader that probably would deliver a message that says something along the lines of, well, it's going to hurt for you, but it's got to be done. Mm-hmm. He might be the last Kyoto one. Kyoto was that, I think. Yeah. I think Kyoto was a bit like that. Yeah. Species at risk legislation. People forget this, but late Jean Chrétien. So Jean Chrétien post- 2000, certainly post-2001, had a little pep in his step on the way out. The the, the Liberals got a lot done in that last three or four years. Yeah, he was a very dynamic political leader. So to to your point, uh, a humbled Trudeau versus a... uh, you know, a, a slightly neutered uh, Ford. I mean, yeah, that that's where the electorate swims. Yeah. That's where the majority of the electorate swims between those two kind of factions. So then it becomes, okay, well, who's going to do the most for me? Yeah. What, what does it mean for me as a, as a voter, my individual, what's the value proposition for me personally? Uh, if you, if you assume that the brands are, are relatively non-toxic, that's what it becomes about. And then also that, you know, leadership is a, is a factor. There are people tired of Trudeau or people tired of, you know, um, a liberal, same old, same old, maybe it's not just in Trudeau in the next election. That's a whole other question. He may, he may well decide himself. He doesn't want to do it. That's right. I mean, I certainly can't imagine. I mean, I, 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 years ago for 15 minutes, I thought about running when I was in Vancouver. I was, and I couldn't pick a party and I couldn't pick a level of government. (laughs) And I thought maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not there. <laughs> maybe hold on that. Yeah. And then have, I would then have I would, some more whiskey. Yeah. And, uh, then I'd roll out of bed at ten in the morning and grab a book and go to the coffee shop. And that's I thought, not that different than a politician. Is yeah. It? No, I don't think. I mean, I I couldn't do the barbecues. <laughs> so another great Pierre Trudeau story was that um, someone wrote a book about him. That leaders often wanted to say, "Oh, the leader deeply regrets that he can't come to your event. He sends his condolences, whatever it might be." <laughs> And, and they said with Trudeau, it was, uh, he's not coming to your barbecue. He doesn't want to come to your barbecue. <laughs> and um, please stop inviting him yeah. to your barbecue. That yeah, be, he will never come. Yeah, that would be my leadership style. I don't do, I don't want to come to your barbecue. Yeah. Uh, so, but also we could, well, we're, we're running deep into time, but I want to touch on this. What about, uh, could we imagine a series of minority governments? Absolutely. How, do the, how does the Conservative Party movement respond to, you know, a, a prolonged period of minority governments? I mean, it's happened before. Yes. With and, the conservatives. Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, I think that that's where the changes that happen within the Liberal Party and the New Democratic movement become a bit more a bit more interesting, right? Um, you know, again, going back to the leadership itself. Who do you think is more likely to reach across the aisle and form yeah. consensus? Is it a Peter McKay or is it a Pierre Polyev? I think right now, today, <laughs> the answer is the former, right? Yeah. So um, I, I think that the electorate, consciously or not, kind of likes minority governments, right? It's the best of both them. worlds. Um, oh, not Very little gets done. In a, Except for 1963 to 1968. Uh, true, yeah, but I, I, so modern minorities, yeah. let's yeah, say, yeah. Um, it's difficult to get to get things done. And the fact of the matter is uh, that that probably will be very frustrating for conservatives uh, to, if they're kind of continually shot down by the you know the left wing parties in in parliament. Uh, but it's a possibility for sure, and I think that. Uh, Ford has gotten the memo and Kenny has gotten the memo to a degree, uh, Scott Moe and others, that uh, consensus is what the electorate wants to see right now. Uh, so who's going to be that, that consensus builder in a time of, be it economic uncertainty, foreign policy uncertainty? Um, I, I think that that's 
uh, we're, we're now talking about a general here, but I think that that's where um, voters are, are going to be looking to their political leaders not to be, um, you know, so, so tribalistic. It's very different than a leadership, though. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, you can be uh, partisan, and I think you should be, without being, uh, you know, aggressively narrow-minded and about it. Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, on that note, uh, we have to leave it there. Uh, the time has flown by. We've eased back into 2020, um, the new year. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Kate Harrison, for being the first guest of 2020. Um, and uh, thank you to Mira Ahmad, as always, for um, producing and putting up with me and to each and every one of you for listening in the car, on the commute, on the treadmill, walking down the street, uh, rolling through the snow, uh, shopping for groceries, longboarding, longboarding, playing tennis, swimming. You can swim now and listen to podcasts wherever you may be. We'll see you again very soon.